Welcome to the Juggling Without Balls podcast. My name is Monica Parkin and I am your host. And every week on the show, I'm going to be talking to powerful, successful women who juggle it all. And when I say juggle it all, I mean everything. Kids, health, aging parents, careers, relationships, you name it, we're going to talk about it. So stick around, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a seat and enjoy the show. Hello, jugglers, and welcome to another episode. My guest this week is Jocelyn Bystrom, former teacher turned writer and mental health advocate. Jocelyn is here today to talk to us about her journey of recovery through seven years of medical investigations for a set of mysterious and debilitating symptoms that left her with daily seizures, cognitive decline, and central apnea as her body forgot to tell her to breathe. It's an amazing story with a wonderful message, and I look forward to hearing more and sharing it with you. Welcome, Jocelyn. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you. For those of you who don't know, Jocelyn Bystrom is currently writing a book about her journey. We're going to talk about what it's about, but I've known Jocelyn for a number of years. She used to be my kid's uh, gifted education teacher for two of my kids many years ago. That's where I first met her. And I've been following her on social media and LinkedIn and see that she's been going through this really interesting journey. And I thought it would be a great topic for listeners because it's really about sometimes trying to do too much. So obviously when I first met you, you were a teacher. Let's start at the beginning and what sort of led you down that particular career path? I think first and foremost, when I graduated when I was only 17 and I was pretty uncertain, I knew that I wanted to go to university and I applied for several different faculties thinking whichever one I got into, I would go to. And when I got into all of the ones that I had applied to, then the decision was forced. And I think potentially because my mother was a teacher and I admired what she did. And your parent is always your very first teacher and the most important teacher of all. And it was what I knew. It was what I had grown up around. I ended up in education and it wasn't really a conscious choice, but I think it was a really good, a good fit for me. Awesome. And I know a few teachers whose parents were also teachers and it's just my opinion, but it seems like there's some of the better teachers that I've met. It's they've grown up around someone that's passionate about it and they've carried that passion into their own careers. So that mm-hmm. kind of leads me into my next question. So I was going to say that you're not teaching due to health in- um, issues right now. And you admit to being a career-driven workaholic perfectionist, in your words. How do you think that mindset impacted some of these health issues and, and some of the things that have caused you to have to step back from work? Significantly and wholeheartedly, they were the underlying essence of what caused my challenges all the way through. If you want to contribute, you have to be up for the challenge yourself. And as a teacher who set the bar high and was working at the time earlier in my career, as you mentioned, with gifted education, as as a challenge teacher working with students who uh, were of high ability, I, I push myself. I work hard. I'm driven. Right now, even though I'm off work, I'm writing a book. I will always be that intense, passionate person that drives myself hard to work hard, achieve, and take action. 
And so that's probably not going to change regardless. However, what I'm learning to do is create a better understanding around balance for myself. And what happened was that in 2014, I unexpectedly, as an educator, lost my job. And not only lost my job, but lost a sense of Sorry, was that the job as a, as a challenge teacher? Yeah, it was the job as the challenge teacher. And it came up on really unexpectedly. I'd been in the position for five years and I felt that I was safe and a secure and maybe naively and wasn't. It just was through a staffing process, but it completely blindsided me. And I had, as a child, been to one school after another, never really found myself rooted which caused me to have to use some childhood childlike strategies to cope and to manage that served me well as a child, but they, they were no longer really serving me well as an adult. And so when I lost this whole career that I'd worked so hard to achieve and I'd worked, I'd had so much post-secondary education to acquire, completing a master's in gifted education I was devastated and I didn't have the tools to understand how I could grieve. And I was just grieving and at a loss that I didn't know how to manage and didn't know how to deal yeah. with. And you're, you're almost losing part of your identity. And I remember you were deeply into that position. You were an advocate for the kids. You were not just educating kids, but educating the community about about the needs of your kids and, and advocating for them and teaching them. So like you weren't just a teacher that just showed up and went home. You were all in. And so I can see how having that ripped out from, it's almost like having your security blanket taken away and part of your identity, like a piece of yourself having to put that away quite unexpectedly. It truly felt like a, a part of me had died. When we experience grief, it's not only the taking away of our identity it's just, there's that missing piece. And all of a sudden, I just didn't feel worthy. I didn't feel like I deserved to have this great job that I'd worked so hard for. And, and I just, my mind was just reeling with misunderstanding and anxious thoughts and distorted thinking yeah. because I didn't have that support. Yeah. I didn't know how to seek support or find support that I needed at that time. And as a result, what happened is my body ended up keeping score. And it was really not apparent to me that some of the physical symptoms that started showing up after that time, it didn't occur to me that they had an underlying mental health. Component. Yeah. So let's talk about that. And then mm -hmm. I was just going to add too that not only the loss of the position, but the relationship with those kids, right? Like you build these relationships with the expectation that you're going to see them the next year and the next year, and you're going to watch them grow. And all of a sudden that's taken away from you too. So it's like, you're losing a family members in a way, but moving on to what you're talking about. So at some point stuff started to go a little bit sideways. And so there were some symptoms that you ignored in hindsight, what should you have been paying attention to? If you could go back and look at that time through a different lens, like what was the first indication that something's just your spidey sense is not quite right if you've been listening to it? Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think there's two parts. There's two parts to that answer. The first is that I think that culturally and as a society, we need to become more aware of our whole body health and wellness in the realm of 
healthcare above the neck, not just below the neck. So that when we go to the doctor, we can easily pick up a phone and there's no stigma attached to saying, hey, I, I, I need an appointment. I've injured my arm. I've got a cut. I've got an infection. There's no stigma attached. We pick up a phone easily. And however, for above the neck, it's a much more difficult to reach out. It's, there's a stigma attached. There's a, you're not coping. You're not managing. And so many of us struggle in silence. And 50% of Canadians are going to struggle in the course of their career with their yeah. mental health. And can I add to that? I, I had Dr. Janice McLaughlin on a few months ago, and I was asking her about the demographics of her practice. And 90% of her appointments are mental health appointments. 90% wow. of- That doesn't surprise me, especially at this time. Health. Yeah. And what I remember, I haven't had anxiety issues for years, but when my first child was born, I had this postpartum anxiety but I didn't recognize it as anxiety. I would say, I'm tired, I'm not sleeping, I, my bones ache, blah, blah, blah. And I thankfully had a good practitioner that said, you know what, it sounds like you're actually having anxiety. And I would say, no, I don't feel anxious at all. I feel tired. And she would say, well, actually, that's because your body's been dealing with this adrenaline dumping and dumping, and now it's it just can't do it anymore. And so once I actually realized what it was and addressed it, thankfully, that's many years behind me, but it took a very perceptive practitioner. So I think there's people that have issues that are mental health issues, but they're not aware of them because they're manifesting physical symptoms. They don't feel like mental exactly. symptoms. Yeah. It's so easy to recognize the, the symptoms of our physical health and not the symptoms of our mental health. Yeah. Like you say, my knee hurts. That's easy. Exactly. I recently took a, a mental health first aid course, which was phenomenal in, in terms of it it increased my ability to understand and comprehend my own struggle with mental health. But more importantly, if you think of someone that has uh, physical first aid skills and they are driving along the highway and they come across an accident and there's no one there yet, you would obviously stop and you would assess, you'd listen, you'd think through, you'd take those first aid skills that you know and think I'm not the one that's going to you're not the one that's going to be doing the surgery or mending the broken bone but you can certainly do what's required in the meantime until the professionals get there and in the same way mental health first aid is critical so that we can help support those people that are having a problem prior to it becoming a crisis so that just like you, when you're experiencing that anxiety postpartum, you have a sense of someone that can come in and around you and provide some support and care, which says, Monica, you're having these physical symptoms. This might be indicative of anxiety. And what does help look like for you today with that anxiety? Yeah. yeah. So that we can approach and just really see people and decrease our social distance from people that have mental health challenges and yeah. are struggling with their mental health, yeah. perhaps in silence. Yeah. I witnessed this the other day, actually. It's funny that you should talk about it because I've never seen someone do this before, but we were at this online Zoom meeting and someone in the meeting just broke down and expressed that, you know what, I'm just having a really hard time right now. And the rest of us were like, okay, no worries. We'll see you when we see you. And someone else spoke up and said, what, can I call you later today? Can I check in on you? We can call. Do you have supports? What's your plan for today? And I was like, wow, like she is on this and not in an invasive way, but she was just attuned to the fact that 
some's not right here. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to say, can I call you later today? Can we talk about what do you have in place? Do you have someone you can call? Do you have someone living with you? What's your plan to get through today? Because obviously you're struggling. And I was so blown away by that. I'd never witnessed that before. And, and it, it just, it really touched my heart. And I thought, wow, more of us need to have this in our toolkit. It was, it, I'd almost want to cry right so now. Grounded. It was very moving, right? Yeah. I yeah. felt very grounded after taking the, the mental health first aid course. And it's unfortunate that right now it's an expensive course. And some uh-huh. people that were taking it were taking it through their work and their employers were paying for it, but it needs to become more accessible so that we can all take it. And it's, you know, within our means to do because. I now know how to approach someone who was like me. I wish when I had lost that job that the person on the other end of the phone would have said to me, Jocelyn, this is tough. You are, it's completely normal that you are going to struggle with the loss of this role that you highly prized and valued and treasured. I'm going to suggest that you potentially find someone to talk to about that today or, and I needed a roadmap and someone who was in a position to give me a roadmap would have been what I needed in that moment. And a moment ago, when I said it was a two-part answer, that's the other part. We need to use our own talents and resources and skills and strengths to do the best we can with what we have. But we also require supports from others who can come around us and nurture us and and give us that a little bit of lift and that spark of hope when we're struggling and we cannot clearly see the roadmap for ahead. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting. Every workplace has to have a certified first aid person. Maybe as part of your vision that every workplace has a certified mental health, like a, someone with their mental health first aid kit. You know what I mean? Because we yes. need someone. If someone slips or falls, someone has to be qualified according to WCB. Maybe every workplace needs someone that can recognize the mental health issue and provide support or direction, right? I think one of one of the things that I am most passionate about coming out of this experience with is that I want to be an advocate for change and I want every educator in our district, provincially, to have mental health first aid for themselves, because we're emotional caregivers, we, we provide emotional labor, as do healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. And this is something that is necessary in our self-care prevention toolkit. <laughs> it, almost, it almost would make sense for it to become a universal thing in every workplace, really. It should be part of the university education. Yes. Healthcare yes. And for teachers, as well as for, not just for teachers and like physicians, it should be in place for healthcare workers for support staff in schools, like everyone, every stakeholder in the school community that interacts with students yeah. and parents and the public, yeah. it would be in their best interest and the students' best interest if those people were trained. So something wasn't going quite right. Did you have some physical symptoms? Let's start with that and then we'll walk through this whole process of getting a diagnosis and figuring what was going on. Okay. Starting in 2013, I actually had a, an EEG, which is a, a map of the brain, basically. And it showed that I had some abnormal epileptiform waves and discharges. So However, at that time, nothing more became of it. Initially, they thought they looked epileptic. 
however it it nothing ever came up that was just the initial incident sorry can i just back up for one second so what led you to go get that eeg did you have and it made you go to the doctor and say something's not right. I was having some I was having some challenges with vertigo and balance and dizziness okay. and those kinds of things, but no connection or thread. And okay. then in 2014, after I lost my position, although I did return to work in a different position, it wasn't the treasured one. To be clear, I still had work, but it wasn't the one that I wasn't your passion. I was still passionate about working with students. It just wasn't what I had so identified with. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so afterwards, my anxious brain went into overdrive. And because of childhood experiences that also left me using strategies that were not necessarily healthy for adult mental health and lacking skill in really being assertive for myself. I was really good at being assertive for all my students and for colleagues and for everyone in my path, but not for myself. Yeah. And I just let my needs go. I wasn't looking after them. And so what happened was I started experiencing this really odd jerk and it was like my upper body, my trunk would like unexpectedly just jerk back and it caused a lot of pain in my low back. It only lasted a second, it, but it was unexpected and I didn't know why I was experiencing this. So then I started the pathway of going through my GP and saying, having this weird thing happening, but I don't know why. And that took a long time to gather momentum. But in the interim, the frequency of those jerks that I didn't know how to explain or what they were called, they increased in intensity and frequency. Initially, they were happening once in a while. And then they, in a period of about a year or two, they started happening every few seconds and many times a minute so that I couldn't stand unsupported without, as my neurologist at that point said, perhaps get yourself a cane or a rolling walker. And I was like, wait, what? I'm 50 years old. I'm not ready for a rolling walker or a cane. Yeah. But I couldn't stand up without holding on. And I was still teaching at that time. So was there concern that maybe you might have MS or early Parkinson's? There was. Well, that's, that was part of the increasing struggle because every time I went to a new specialist and I went to many, they would say, this is very unusual. This is very unexpected. This is, seems very rare. Not reassuring. Not reassuring. We checked for MS. We checked for Parkinson's. We checked for tumors, brain tumors. All of these really life-impacting, life-shortening ideas were planted in my mind that might be possible, but nobody really knew. All of the evaluations and assessments and observations all came up. I was healthy. So that made it really difficult because I have a very curious brain 
And I really wanted clarity. I needed clarity. Why was my body doing this very strange thing that was causing me significant physical challenges? It was making my ability to work difficult. It At that point, I was teaching part-time because I needed a physical rest day because holding my body with that much tension to make sure that the jerk didn't happen all the time was causing postural problems. And I was exhausted all the time just from the, the mental not knowing whether I had something that I was going to die from or the, the unknowing was harder. The uncertainty of it would certainly jack your anxiety up, like not knowing what's going on and probably thinking of all these worst case scenarios, even though everyone's saying you're fine, you're like, clearly I'm not. And it was a long journey. Eventually, my GPs did put in a referral for the UBC Movement Disorders Clinic, which is run through the Parkinson's Research Facility at the University of British Columbia. And I was like, Parkinson's? I have Parkinson's? So off I go to the Parkinson's Clinic. But it took me from the time of the referral to my first appointment was well over a year. And so you're waiting and you're stewing and your symptoms are increasing and you're getting worse and worse everywhere you go. People are saying, what is wrong with you? Because you can't stand, you can't, you're, you look uncomfortable and you are holding on all the time. And so when I finally got to that appointment, I received an initial diagnosis for the first time. And it was four years from the time that I started having symptoms till I experienced that first diagnosis. And all through that time, they were, I had been on three or four different medication trials to try to reduce the symptoms that I was experiencing, and none of them seemed to be helping. And then after I got a diagnosis, so I found out they're called myclonic jerks, I was diagnosed with proprio-spinal myclonus, which is just a long name that didn't really give me any clarity, and to find out that it was a really rare thing and that I had it. So for a year until my next follow-up appointment with the movement clin- movement disorders clinic, and then I was reassessed and I was told, no, you don't have oh. <laughs> proprio-spinal myclonus, you have orthostatic myclonus, which means that you only have the jerks when you're standing and you don't have them at any other time. Interesting. Okay. Another new diagnosis more medication changes. My body is not managing these medication changes. A lot of the medications are causing cognitive decline and I am starting to lose my ability to focus and concentrate, remember names. And this is hard in the workplace. I'm still working. Wow. Okay. I was still working. I worked part-time and then intermittently I did go on leaves at my neurologist's request. I would have chunks of time, but then I'd always be trying to go back because I love my work. So I was always trying to be well and be back to work. And then when in 2019, I believe it was, it just all became too much. I was cognitively, I was struggling. I was, I was working with students that were fabulously wonderful, but had complex and big needs. And the stress level was really exacerbating my symptoms. And my neurologist said, it's time. So she pulled me out of the classroom. And then it was time for me to say goodbye again, (laughs) more colleagues. And so now not only is my physical body a wreck, 
but I've lost the job I loved, the career path I loved, and now I'm no longer teaching. So I don't have anything anymore. I'm at home with all of these physical symptoms. It's coming to the end of 2019. And I start retraining while at home to go back to work as a teacher librarian, thinking that if I retrain, I'll be able to use all the skill set that I already have to work in a situation where it's an incredibly intense job and it's so important in today's libraries, which are no longer libraries of the past. So that brought basically up to the end of 2019, I'm off work, I'm going back, I'm being 2018, going back retraining. So I get really excited. I go through a gradual return to work program and I go in slowly and I step back in as a teacher or librarian and I'm super pumped. I'm so excited. I go back in September of 2019 after almost a full year of being off. And during that year, I spent the entire year, the driven, focused person that I am, <laughs> trying to lose weight. I lost 30 pounds. I started running. I was trying to get myself fit. I thought, if I am going to lose my physical body, I want to do everything I can right now to get it to a place of strength so that if I am going to lose my ability to walk or my physicality, it's from a place of strength and not from a place of weakness. Right. So I spent that whole year just working diligently, <laughs> insanely to get strong. And at the end of it, you previously had Karen McKinnon on and bless her heart. I said to her, I need pictures of myself. I need a picture of this strength because this might be my last opportunity to look at my body strong and capable before it declines. That's the mental health set I was in. I, I basically knew that my body was getting worse and worse. And I just wanted something on the wall that I could remember being strong. So she took a lot of pictures. And when they came back, there were two that were just, they grabbed me. The first was a picture of my physical strength. And the second picture was one that she captured that I didn't realize she'd even taken. And it was a more telling story. It, it captured the strength and the peace and calm in my face. And it was then I began to make the shift that I realized that my strength comes from the calm that I feel in my mind and not in my body. You need all of it. Yeah. And so that was the beginning of a, a really significant shift of learning how to navigate the non-negotiable things that I needed to make sure I looked after and to shift from a physical health perspective to a gratitude perspective where I focused on what was going well even though things were going so badly yeah. because in January of 2020, I got the worst call ever from the neurologist saying, you've just had another EEG. It doesn't look good. And you may no longer drive. You may no longer work. And that was really hard. That's a tough one to sit with. Eh? Yeah. It was a really tough one. So that felt like the end. So also the beginning of 2020, mm. also at a time when my mother 
has been moving through her dementia journey and she moves into my home. I invite her, we invite her to move into yeah. our home. So within the course of a week, January 27th, my mother and I both lose our driver's licenses. I lose my job, my work, my career. And I start teaching my mother and I how to take public transit so that we can have some tiny sliver of independence to get around. Yeah. So I also spent three of those months in early 2020 going through her apartment of 20 years, oh. sorting and cleaning and moving her out yeah. into our home and becoming her full-time 24-7 caregiver. I was also experiencing really significant mental health and physical health challenges of my own. And, and really needing to rest. and Needing to, to rest and recharge yeah. without any time. And then add in the layer that there's also a pandemic happening. Yes. And you can't go anywhere. And it's just that much more complicated. I started to really bottom out. That was the sign that not only was my physical body taking a big hit, my mental health was taking a big hit. It became really hard for me to make the decision that needed to be made around my mother in terms of when do you choose to put a parent into care? Yeah. And I always knew it was going to be tough. I was her power of attorney. I am her power of attorney. I continue to be her power of attorney. And there were days where I was being admitted to emergency and coming home to be a full-time caregiver. Yeah, it reminds me of that whole oxygen mask thing. Sometimes in order to care for others, you have to care for yourself first. And it sounds mm -hmm. like that's a decision you're facing. In order for me to you have to look after yourself and your own recovery before you can care for others. And it sounds like at that point, you were still trying to care for someone else without that realization that you actually have to be healthy to do that for someone else. Exactly. And yet it doesn't change how difficult it is for a child to make a decision for a parent to lose their freedom yeah and go into care at a time during a pandemic when putting them in care means two weeks of isolation and then not seeing their loved one for potentially a year yeah and for someone with dementia and i was the one that had to decide that i thought if i put my mother in care during covid I'm hearing on the news, I won't be able to see her again. I'll yeah. never be able to hug her again. She'll yeah. not know my name by the time I potentially do get to see her again. And I couldn't do it. No. So I kept yeah. her with me and I cared for her. And every day my husband came home from work and he was my caregiver. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. I yeah. was a care recipient at the same time I was a full-time caregiver yeah. And at that time, I reached out through the Family Caregivers of British Columbia, which is an amazing group. The Family Caregivers of British Columbia are a, a phenomenal support system and network. And I'm actually now a Zoom host for some of their programs on a volunteer basis because the, it was just life-changing what I was able to learn about helping myself to help others. Yeah. And when I finally ended up for the second admission into the Comox Valley Hospital, they admitted me thinking I was having a stroke. 
I, I underwent a hot stroke protocol in the Comox Valley Hospital after my husband taking me there because I was having tingling in my face and I experienced what's called a thunderclap headache where you they think you are having a, a stroke basically. And it was really terrifying. And I ended up there seven days. People started talking to me, Jocelyn, it's time to put your mother in care. But it would still be weeks before I could actually do that. Yeah. yeah. So is she in care now? Did you ultimately? She is in care now. She went into care in September of 2020. She was with us through till the end of September. And at that point, as my children will tell me now and have told me now, and my husband, they didn't know that I would live till the end of the year. Wow. Wow. That's how bad things were. Yeah. And what so it's a wake up call when you realize you have to choose your own life over your mother's. Yeah. And I did. Yeah. But what a, what an impossible decision. It was very tough. Not to make that choice. Yeah. Yeah. So now moving forward, here's a question actually that I ask other people and maybe it's hard to find it now. Obviously we've heard what the challenges are. Do you think there was a silver lining in there for you anywhere? There are many, there are many. I think it's important to say that after mom went into care, my physical body continued to decline from September of 2020 until February 2021. I started experiencing seizures and seizures that would last between up to 30 minutes in length. Unlike most epileptics, because I'm not an epileptic, unlike most epileptics, I am fully cognizant and aware throughout the entire seizure. And sometimes I'd have up to eight in a single day. And it wasn't until I finally ended up in the Vancouver General Seizure Investigation Unit, fully incapacitated. I couldn't uh, fall asleep without having a seizure. I could not um, walk for more than six or seven minutes without having a seizure. Uh, I was experiencing central apnea. My brain was forgetting to tell my body to breathe. I was in really rough shape. And when I went into the Seizure Investigation Unit, Everybody in my circle had been traumatized by that point. My friends just told me last week, Jocelyn, you don't realize how impacted by trauma everyone is. It's not just your husband and your children. It's your extended family and all your friends and all of the people in your community that care about you. It traumatizes all of us, which is, brings me back to the silver lining And that is that coming out of the seizure investigation unit where I was told, much to my husband's horror, that the neurological, I was assessed by three teams. I was assessed by the respirology team because of the apnea I was experiencing. I was assessed by the psychiatric team just because of the trauma that I was moving through. And I was assessed by the neurological team. And the neurological team came in first after they completed all of their assessments. And this is the, was their news. Jocelyn, this is the best news we ever get to give anyone. There is nothing neurologically wrong with your brain. In fact, you can drive. And my husband stood in horror in that room, listening, hearing after I just had 12, you know, 12 seizures in a few short days that I was going to be able to drive. He was like, what? No. 
And I was horrified because I knew that I was certainly not going to be driving because I wasn't well. And it was interesting because that's what I was told. And the neurology team left. They were really happy to be able to deliver wonderful news. And then the psychiatry team came in and delivered really unexpected news. And I'll tell you exactly what I was told. Yeah. And I have to say, I made a very strong connection with the doctor that I met in SIU. He was a game changer, a life changer, and a provider of a spark of hope because his words, although life-changing, were filled with compassion. And he said, Jocelyn, there's a lot coming at you. It's a severe condition. It's a big deal. However, there's hope and you're going to get better. Nice. And with that, I just experienced a whole shift. The lens which with I saw all of my struggle, I finally had the clarity seven years later that I needed to start on the journey to wellness. And it shifted because I understood at that point, A, that there was nothing neurologically wrong with my mind. And it was so reassuring to hear those words that there was nothing neurologically wrong. The abnormal EEGs that I had for seven years were reclassified as a very rare normal. So interestingly enough, all of the things that they'd been medicating me for these abnormal epileptiform waves and discharges, they'd been medicating to prevent further loss, prevent more seizures. And all of the medications that they had me on were actually creating a bigger problem. Right. So you were actually a variation of normal and they were treating that variation of normal, which is now leading to a new cascade of symptoms. Is that that's, that's correct. And so once neurologically, we knew that all was well and that they actually reclassified, they had a panel of people across North America specialists determined that. I'm a very rare normal. Wow. Then they took me off all the seizure medication and sent me home, much to my husband's horror. He's like, you're coming home? (laughs) Off all medication? Yeah. I believe I was a recipient of a miracle that day because I have not had a seizure since. Really? And in my mind, scientifically there's no explanation for that yeah spiritually there is yeah and I hold on to that wow um the most important piece of that coming out of learning that you have a psychiatric diagnosis and not only one but four um, I was diagnosed with FND which is functional neurologic disorder and the twitter version of that (laughs) (laughs) is that your brain sends mixed messages to all of the rest of your body and causes physical symptoms Yeah, because it gets messed up. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I was diagnosed with FND. I was diagnosed with PTSD yeah. as a result of both childhood trauma and the loss of my career. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me that I always think of PTSD as being something you get if you've you've been in a war or you've experienced massive trauma or you yeah interesting unfortunate yeah interesting you should say that because after my first daughter was born remember I said I had this postpartum anxiety but I also started having I had a horrible labor and delivery c-section experience when I would start having flashbacks I'd have to go to the hospital for blood work I couldn't get myself in the door I'd be having these meltdowns and again this amazing family doctor I have said I think you actually have PTSD and I'm like I don't have PTSD I haven't had any trauma and just, you were in labor for 36 hours you had a c-section all these things happened that were beyond your control and now as a result of this you are constantly reliving this experience again and again and she was able to refer me to someone and we worked through that and I haven't you know, had those flashbacks or experiences for years, but thankfully I got a very quick, someone was on it, noticed it and got me the right resources. And I was able to move past that. But I was like you, I was like, no, PTSD happens to soldiers. It doesn't happen to like women that are stuck in labor for three days. That's not a thing, but it was a thing. But that's part of learning about mental health is you need to realize that trauma happens to many people. And The circumstances are very individual. For someone else who hadn't had prior childhood trauma to lose their career, they may have responded very differently than the way my body and my mind responded. If you'd known other things or had other resources, you might have taken different steps. But for you in that moment, in that time, it was the tipping point for you. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. That's right. That's right. And so when you asked me about silver linings, it's taken me a long time to get there, but there were many. I think first and foremost was the time I had with my mom. My mom has been a treasure to myself and my family for a very long time. She was a, a, a warrior single mom, and she has been ever present in the lives of our children as a grandma and just over the top and so having her here in her what I'll say is last year of really any clarity gave us some really beautiful time my mom had never been someone who was physically affectionate and she had become this nurturing more relaxed wonderful open mom that I could embrace yeah but through this period of her of her dementia she was still at a stage with frontal temporal dementia where the form of dementia she's still experiencing it it robs you of your vocabulary and your language and your ability to communicate otherwise her physical body looks completely perfect if you see her and I pick her up three times a week and we go all over the place and, and still to this day, I'm still her caregiver. And I you're, still you're driver. by the sounds of things you're driving. And I'm driving. So that's a silver lining. There are so many silver linings. My increased understanding around my own mental health and my own awareness have enabled me to have more authentic relationships, to be more compassionate and kind to have an attitude of gratitude rather than a fixation and focus on what's not going well and 
to realize that when I do go back to work, I'm going to have a lot of incredible tools in my kit, not only for myself, but those that I can advocate and share with others. Yeah. And so that's really incredible. Yeah. And I think it's also a silver lining to know that recovery, when you have a mental health diagnosis, is not something that you're going to reach and attain. It's a process of living and getting the tools and supports to manage it as effectively as you can and being aware that it doesn't it doesn't prevent you from achieving your goals or doing the things you love to do yeah and and one day at a time so um we're just starting to run out of time here but so we've talked about what needs to change in the workplace you're writing a memoir about your experiences where can when is that coming you have a website uh that we can direct people to Okay, so two parts to that answer. First of all, quickly, the memoir that I'm writing is still in progress. It's very close to completion. At that point, I'll need to pitch it to an agent and and have it published. So I'm I'm excited for that. Yeah, coming soon, I hope. Yeah. And but more importantly, I have a a new website, a new blog at writeradvocatejocelynb.com, and that's a spot where I'm housing one and two minute short reads, just quick slivers and snapshots of my own lived experiences to highlight supports that are available and provide resources to people who may still be struggling in silence like I was so that they don't need to do that any longer because we're always stronger together and we need to continue to work together to reduce the stigma around claiming that you have mental health challenges and I will always live with those, but they are not going to define me. Yeah. And we'll have that link in the show notes also. Yeah. And so if if someone out there doesn't know what to say, they see someone struggling in their workplace or in their family and they're like, I just, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to approach them. I think my go-to phrase from now on, if I see someone struggling is what does support or help look like for you today? I want to be there for you. How can I offer it? And can I check in again with you? And that's super easy. That's so easy to just to just put those words out there and to follow them up with some action. So that's great. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure. That's it for this week. To get more information on any of my guests or to book me as a speaker at your next event, please visit jugglingwithoutballs.ca and you would totally make my day if you left me a review or you sent me an email at monica at jugglingwithoutballs.ca and let me know what you got out of this week's episode. I'm hoping to read some of those reviews and some of those emails on future episodes. Have a great week, jugglers. Jugglers.